from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Heather, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be here, an honour, in fact. Um, I do feel a bit of a fraud. I'm a nuclear submariner, and I'm in the company of air engineers and aviators who know much more about the subject that I'm about to talk about than I do. But what I am going to do is, by virtue of my position now as the Aircraft Carrier Alliance Managing Director... I'm going to give you some impressions of where we've got to in the programme, what lies ahead, how we've de-risked the programme from uh, an aviation point of view. And I hope those impressions uh, prompt a conversation amongst the experts in the room. My role here really is to uh, reveal the Magic Lantern show in front of you for a little while and prompt a conversation later on, which I'd be happy to uh, support. So, just a couple of words personally, um, aside from the CV, Simon, what actually happened in my naval career was that everyone else left, and, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 and I turned out someone had to do it, so um, I, I gladly um, uh, took, up the, the, took up the role. Uh, but uh, many of you in the room may know that my father was in the Fleet Air Arm, and uh, had a career in the Fleet Air Arm not dissimilar to Alan Bristow's and perhaps not quite so heroic, but uh, definitely three years behind many parallels. And Dad ended up uh, flying helicopters in the early days in the Royal Navy, and then left to fly uh, in the early days of helicopter operations in the United Kingdom, all the daring-do stuff of crop spraying, chimney, power line inspections, all of that. Um, Survived that, and moved on to... Uh, become uh, a flight operations inspector working in the Civil Aviation Authority. And some of you in the room I know, uh, know my father from that period. And it was for his work in that area, working very much uh, with uh, Bristow, the company then working very hard in the North Sea, uh, that Dad won here the Alan Marsh Medal in 1982. And uh, it was a great pleasure, Simon, when you asked me a little while ago to come and speak, because I could link my, um, my father's career to uh, this event. The first helicopter I flew in, uh, whether Alan Bristow uh, permissioned it or knew about it or not, I have no idea. It was a, a jet ranger from Bristow's, and Dad landed it on the tennis court and took me and Mum and my grandmother uh, on a jolly in the local area. I'm sure it was down as training hours, Heather, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, Emboldened by that, he later brought a Sikorsky S61 onto the, into the garden. And that was a, a different beast altogether, of course. Mum didn't speak to Dad for several weeks because the Dahlia stock was removed in one fell <laughs> swoop, as you can all imagine. But I, I, I joke a little about this because the, um, the ship-air interface... Uh, actually strikes uh, some really important connections uh, that I just wanted to dwell on that flow from uh, the roots of this lecture. And uh, the the Sikorsky hoverfly, of course, that 
iconic picture of Alan landing a light helicopter on the flight deck of a frigate off Portland is just worth pausing to remember because it was a very brave act. It opened up an epoch of helicopter operations from small flight decks. And I like to think, as an observer of Royal Naval helicopter operations, that the Royal Navy has absolutely led the way in making the most of helicopters at sea. And the origin of that was, of course, that uh, event with Alan at the controls. My father's uh, time in the Navy was as a fighter pilot in Sea Furies and uh, for a period on this type, the Blackburn Firebrand. And I've uh, been reading his logs and uh, reading his diaries of, uh, around that time uh, in the late 40s, early 50s. And the Firebrand was a pig to fly, as many of you may know. I think uh, Eric Brown uh, said it was the worst uh, aircraft to have entered naval service. And that was certainly my father's experience. Um, he crashed twice onto the deck, uh, once uh, glory and then indomitable. I've got his uh, logbook here. And uh, he crashed. Um, he, he, he says here, brackets, barrier. Um, I have the photograph of um, this firebrand with no undercarriage to, to, um, left to speak of. I think it was rather more than a barrier uh, incident. And um, fuel around on the deck and a very brave fireman uh, getting out to the cockpit there to, to get him out. And I think my father told me when I was young that they pushed the aircraft over the side uh, because they knew that, they, um, that the others were in the in the queue and uh, there was nothing they could do with it so it was pushed unceremoniously over the side his commanding officer in his squadron um, said this about uh, two months later uh, Lister should polish up his deck landings <laughs> that was after he'd written off uh, two uh, firebrands uh, in my father's defence, uh, the firebrand was withdrawn from service pretty quickly thereafter. The cockpit was so far back uh, that he told me that as you flared out, I'm using terms that I barely understand, do you understand? Uh, as you flared out, you lost sight not only of the deck but of the ship in, uh, completely. Uh, and for the last uh, five, ten seconds, it was um, a complete lottery as to whether you would survive. But clearly he did, I'm here. Um, and uh, we'll move on from the firebrand. But, you know, his stories about the firebrand taught me that the ship-air interface is absolutely vital to get right. And I'm sure Alan, in his early days doing deck landings on the back of that frigate with no real understanding of the vortices and wind pattern around that uh, ship, as you can imagine, with the margins that he had in that hoverfly, you just begin to understand how, uh, frankly, brave um, our predecessors were. So I just mentioned that the whirlwind was, um, a, became a stalwart of uh, naval service, but also in Bristow's too. Um, it, it went from a piston engine. I think the later whirlwinds had a, 
uh, a turbine, um, which must have improved things tremendously. One of my father's stories was of um, taking a whirlwind over the Solent uh, to um, uh, lay some ashes at sea, uh, a burial at sea of, of some ashes, or put ashes into the sea. And uh, a very junior chaplain had been engaged uh, to do this task. And um, Dad told me the story that uh, the chaplain, rather than throwing the casket out of the, uh, out of the, out of the door, the open door, he opened the bag and the aircraft was full of ash uh, and uh, was for some time afterwards. Whether anyone was told about that, I'm not sure. But certainly the whirlwind uh, connects uh, the Navy and Bristow very strongly. My father taught Bill Bedford to hover uh, in the Kestrel in the P-1127 and uh, that, uh, I think, introduces just that link between uh, rotary wing uh, aircraft to helicopters and fixed wing as the precursor to the Harrier was introduced into service uh, with expert test pilots such as Bill Bedford at the controls. Uh, I've mentioned the Sea King. Uh, I, as a lad, had the observer's book of aircraft and uh, the Sea King was doing Star Wars service, I think, in 1959 and is still doing stalwart service uh, in other parts of Europe even today. Um, when I was on the Kursk rescue, I um, was flown by the Norwegian Navy from uh, Norman Pioneer to uh, the Russian ship uh, executing the rescue at long range uh, in a Sea King in some very lively weather. And uh, this submariner, uh, after two and a half hours in a Sea King, uh, realized that this was uh, quite uh, a physical feat as well as a technical feat. And then I just mentioned now the connection with the F-35 Lightning, which I'll come on to. Uh, and I just wanted to do something to say that the, you know, the roots of rotary wing aviation ending in the Merlin today on the flight deck of uh, the Queen Elizabeth today go right the way back to the hoverfly. And the roots of naval aviation with the lightning coming into service go right back to the firebrand and before that, uh, the, into the Sea Fury and uh, the aircraft before, uh, before that. Those are the connections. I've spent perhaps a little longer than I wanted to or should have done on that. But I do um, appreciate, Simon, the invitation to speak. It's been a long-standing interest and a strong family connection here. And it's one of the reasons I so gladly accepted the role when it was offered of being the managing director of the Aircraft Carrier Alliance. So what is the alliance? Well, it is four industry and MOD partners working together to deliver the nation's flagship, all 65,000 tonnes of it. We've built the first Queen Elizabeth. We're well through building the second the operational purpose, let's start with that, is on the screen. And carrier strike is, of course, at the heart of it. But the ability to project hard and soft power in that diplomatic and military jargon uh, that we use today is at the heart of building this substantial vessel. Power held in restraint is a very powerful deterrent, conventional deterrent, 
uh, for creating peace around the world. And the Royal Navy is delighted, I know, to be recovering its fixed-wing carrier capability. Note that the carrier is not only there to take its principal uh, weapon system, aircraft weapon systems around Crowsnest, Merlimont II and the F-35, but it can also mount the Chinook, it can deploy uh, the Merlin uh, Mark IV and the Apache. Although anyone, uh, if anyone in the room has flown an Apache over the sea, they're a braver man or woman than me. I hear that it sinks like a stone when it hits the water and the flotation gear isn't that uh, good. But um, we're not... Uh, are we in Chatham House rules here tonight, Simon? Yes. I, uh, good, because I, I may be offering comments that don't accord with their lordship's <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> are we doing okay? I'm just, I just want to check. Is this... Is this are we, can you hear me at the back? We're doing okay. Good. So just in terms of the ship and just understanding the scale of the ship. This is a photo montage of Rosyth Dockyard, where I am at the moment. Uh, in the middle of that photograph, you can see uh, the Queen Elizabeth in build in the, the vast battleship dock that dominates Rosyth. Alongside her is illustrious. And you can see that the two ships do not compare. One is three times the size of the other. And just to bring that point of the Queen Elizabeth being a significant vessel. I've brought these, and I'm very satisfied by this bit. The ship we're building is bigger than the French. <laughs> I sometimes think that we just put that extra 22 metres on it so that it could be bigger than the French, but there we are. Actually, I've read, I've read the documentation. We built, it for a, we built it that long for a very specific reason. And of course, you know, the, the world standard for carrier strike is the Nimitz class. And for all its displacement and for all its cost, actually, uh, the Queen Elizabeth and the Prince of Wales are really not far off that. So I'm going to talk about a significant vessel. I'm going to talk about, forgive the slang, but awesome aviation to this uh, novice in this field. The F-35, I've, I've been to Fairford to clamber over the F-35. I thought I should to make sure I understood what responsibility I was taking on as I became the chief of material fleet some four years ago. And the thing that struck me about this aircraft, apart from its stealth and its extraordinary level of automation and, and ergonomic uh, suitability for a pilot, the all-round visibility was extraordinary compared to the stories of the firebrand. The F-35's bomb bay, which of course is what it's all about in terms of dumping ordnance on the enemy, is only half of the story. This stealthy, very stealthy aircraft not only has an extraordinary range, an extraordinary payload, but has an information superiority to... Uh, rival, in fact, to beat anything in the world. And if I uh, don't make anything else plain this evening, I wanted to just emphasize this point that aside from the ship and aside from the awesome aviation, the 
ship and the aircraft are ab- have absolutely been designed from the outset to dominate, to dominate the information war in its current form and in its predicted form too. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not able to say much more about that this evening, but I would want you all to be aware that we are buying a system here uh, that is uh, not available anywhere else in the world. For the Nimitz, for the WASP that you'll see later operating the F-35, the integration, particularly in this information area, between the aircraft and the ship and, the, uh, and ashore is hugely impressive. And just to put that in some sort of context, some facts and figures, the Aircraft Carrier Alliance is, uh, is um, very keen on uh, saying that this ship is as big as the House of, uh, the House of Commons or the anchor weighs the equivalent of a, a London double-decker bus. I've rejected those kind of comparisons for this audience. That, that data about the uh, mission system, I hope, it gives you a very strong sense of the capability, the latent capability of this platform. Now, first point, uh, we are in the aeronautical society, and I just wanted to make a key conclusion from what I've said already. This is about a ship, a mission, and an information system operating closely together in an integrated way, having been designed with that in mind from the outset, optimised around that, creating a genuine world-class capability, and I'm not just peddling the marketing line. I speak to you when I say that as a naval officer uh, and now in industry too. So let's move on. Uh, I'm going to talk about the ship build, just uh, set up where we are, and then I'm going to talk about the aircraft. Um, On the ship build... Many of you will know that it's been a national uh, endeavour. The ship was built in a modular form in six yards around the country. Major blocks containing the uh, engines, the main engine spaces uh, up on the Clyde, where they're now in BA Systems building uh, the offshore patrol vessels and the frigates. And then in Birkenhead, uh, Camelhead built the other key components there that you see there close to the flight deck. Uh, in, as we go around the country, uh, Appledore built the front end. Um, and when I saw the front end, it's got a large bulbous bow. And uh, when I first saw that bulbous bow at Appledore, I thought Appledore were into, had started building submarines. Um, <laughs> uh, that's about the only connection I have between submarines and this presentation tonight. Portsmouth uh, built those components accommodation spaces uh, mainly on the uh, front and top end of the deck. A&P on the Tyne, uh, the forward machinery spaces, complex spaces. And then in Rosyth, the smaller sponsons that go around the main structure of the ship to create the flight deck breadth uh, and the size, of the, uh, the size of the deck itself built in Rosyth. All of those components were shipped to Rosyth And where distributed build strategy has been employed elsewhere in the world, and I've seen this with my own eyes, uh, keeping 
control of the dimensions is obviously very important. Not everyone has done that. In other countries, I have to report that in the United Kingdom, contrary to what we frankly feared, these components have fitted together perfectly. And we haven't been putting in infill pieces and using chain blocks to bring the ship into alignment. The skidding of the components and the lowering of the components, some of them are up at 1,000 tonnes. We've skidded components weighing 22,000 tonnes together. The alignment has been absolutely spot on. So, contrary to uh, press reports, the ship is not sinking. I'm happy to take questions on the stern seal later. (laughs) The workforce, my great pleasure to lead, is substantial. We're beginning to wind that workforce down as we begin to complete the Prince of Wales. So just to put the programme in context, the Queen Elizabeth has been accepted into service by the Royal Navy with quite a bit of work remaining to be done. And we've been working hard in Portsmouth as well as in Rosyth to uh, complete aspects of the ship. That's all going uh, very well, and she will be ready for fixed-wing flying trials uh, at the end of this year. Up in Rosyth, the Prince of Wales came out of dock. We undocked her on the last safe day before Christmas. Uh, The weather clamped down then and has almost not offered us a day to undock since then until about two weeks ago. So we're very happy that we managed to get her out of dock. It's a challenging operation with only that much, literally, space either side of the ship as we pull her out of the dock. And Beth Lowe is somewhere here in the audience and uh, as one of our junior engineers in BA Systems will have been intimately involved with the preparations for uh, that undocking, which has gone very well indeed. The stage we're at is that uh, the systems are, in broad terms, 90% installed. Uh, The vast majority of the equipment is installed, and the challenging issue now is to set uh, the equipment to work, test and commission that, so that when we take her to sea at the back end of next year, uh, we are... Uh, she will operate reliably and well, just as the first of class has done. We're very pleased with the performance on trials thus far. The Queen Elizabeth went through platform sea trials. You'll see on the Sunday evening the documentary by the BBC, uh, 8 o'clock Sunday evening, next three weeks, must see. Um, On week two, it tells you about the difficulties we had around uh, the shaft, and the plumber block and the propeller. All put right on trials, that's what trials are for. And the ship has operated well. The level of confidence in the ship's company with this platform is higher than I've seen in any platform we've uh, brought into service uh, since I joined the Navy 40 years ago. We're delighted with her overall performance. Mission system sea trials have gone well, and on rotary wing flying trials that have just completed The ship has performed well and as predicted. So, I want to now talk about aircraft integration. Actually, I don't mean that. That's actually the wrong concept. And building on what I said before, this isn't about integrating an aircraft type with a ship that's been designed for some other purpose. 
This is actually about integrating a system of systems from the outset and making that work from the outset and taking design compromise into each system to optimize the whole. The axes of integration which I've learnt about as I've taken over this latest role are hugely impressive. The test, the test plan that we're running through now and the acceptance plan that we're running through now was first conceived 10 years ago. And that has been its strength because in a very systematic way over this two-year period we are working through every aspect of the capability of the ship which needs to be demonstrated. First, making it demonstrating that it's safe to float and move, and then moving on to mission systems trials to demonstrate that the radars work effectively, that communications work effectively, and we can manage the airspace around the ship safely. And then moving on to rotary wing flying trials and uh, airflow air pattern trials, making sure that the uh, sophisticated modelling of uh, wind and relative wind at different speeds is actually borne out through empirical measurement. And there will be one or two of you in the audience I know who will have been involved in that modelling. And I was up in um, Wharton just yesterday talking to David Atkinson, who's been leading this aspect of ship air integration. And the outcome of the trials from airflow air pattern and rotary wing absolutely validates the modelling uh, that has been done uh, for the simulators and the shore test and evaluation uh, since the programme started. The other thing I'd bring out from that list is weapon storage and delivery. The Nimitz has 3,500 in its crew and uh, the um, at maximum, the Queen Elizabeth has 1,400 in its crew. And one of the key features that enables us to do that is that we deliver ordnance to the flight deck and take it back down if we need to. Uh, of course, it's always preferable not to have to take ordnance back down because we like to drop it on the enemy. But in delivering it to the flight deck at the required rate, which is substantial... 108 uh, sorties per day is the design level. Uh, the deep magazines are huge. The weapon handling areas are substantial. The level of automation in moving the weapons from the magazine to the flight deck is complete. So weapons arrive palletized, are stored palletized, are moved from the deep magazine to the weapon preparation area, palletized, are then moved up on a rapid lift to the flight deck for on their uh, appropriate trolleys up onto the flight deck, stored there, uh, ready uh, for use. That system in full operation employs, has only 12 people running it. And that's an extraordinary, the, the, the transfer system. It's an, that is an extraordinary feat, I think, of British engineering. Our um, 
experience thus far has been very encouraging. We built a short demonstrator, showed that the reliability could be obtained, that the system could work, would work. Our experience at sea, and we've thus far built one of the two complexes and tested at sea at Queen Elizabeth, and we're about to finish next week, in fact, the other complex. Uh, our experience thus far, uh, short of one or two teething troubles around sensor position, sensor location, is that we're going to be uh, very well served by the system in terms of reliability uh, and functionality. Now, just going to the uh, modelling and the uh, modelling that's gone on at Wharton of both the ship and uh, the aircraft. Going back to that Blackburn um, firebrand, one of its challenges was not only visibility, but uh, its, and I'm hoping an aviator will leap to my rescue here, but uh, when you put uh, left or right stick on, the aircraft's meant to move. Uh, and apparently the firebrand didn't. <laughs> and uh, in the simulator yesterday in uh, Wharton, I thought I'd just, I, I knew I was coming here, of course, so I thought I'd just try that and see what happens. Uh, I lost 400 feet in about five seconds because the aircraft is just that extraordinarily agile. I have nothing to compare it with, ladies and gentlemen, uh, but the very strong impression I gained from half an hour, no, an hour in the simulator, uh, at the end of which, by the way, I felt quite queasy. Uh, so I'm glad I selected the career as a submariner. I was hugely impressed by its manoeuvrability and its agility and its ability to cope with varying conditions. More of that in a moment. Okay, um, probably said enough there, and we can come back to uh, questions on that if we need to. This is a bit of magic lantern, so I hope those uh, pictures are clear to you, but I've talked about the F-35 and the crow's nest uh, due to enter uh, service very soon, and the highly mechanised, uh, the crow's nest, of course, to uh, provide the airborne early warning, uh, and the highly mechanised to deliver ordnance to the flight deck. A really impressive hangar. Um, most visitors to the aircraft carrier are absolutely struck down by the size of the hangar, and 12 fully serviced um, servicing spots inside the hangar for. Uh, the maintenance of the aircraft and of course equipped with all the special equipment needed to deal with the uh, very high level of confidentiality of that platform uh, and the very high uh, level of sophistication of the information systems um, that operate the aircraft and are part of its mission system. I don't apologise for the Top Gun um, uh, soundtrack. <laughs> um, you can see that on the web, but I just uh, thought I'd inject that just to give us a bit of uh, 
life in the middle of my presentation, the WASP is being used as the development platform uh, for uh, the F-35. And I was speaking to uh, Nathan Gray, Commander Nathan Gray, the uh, fleet air arm test pilot uh, out there in the United States uh, working on the aircraft. He's got a long uh, uh, track record in fixed-wing operations, first with the Harrier and then moved on to the uh, AV-8B when um, we made the erroneous decision to uh, take the Harrier out of service before we uh, got to the F-35. That was one of those comments that I'd be grateful if you didn't um, repeat. <laughs> By the way, when I was in Russia, Simon, uh, in, I was in Russia in 1992, just after the collapse of the Soviet Union with Anita, and uh, I didn't go anywhere in Russia without Anita. Anita, I bow down to your stoicism travelling with me around Russia whilst I was intelligence collecting and you were making sure I wasn't the victim or subject of any honey trap. <laughs> I think we broadly succeeded. <laughs> yeah, broadly. <laughs> but the, I just happened, you know, you've got to get yourself into a location to gain intelligence, and I'd done that by basically um, joining up with the BBC for a bit. And um, I got into the summit in Minsk of the um, uh, heads of the uh, former Soviet Union. And just in the foyer of the uh, hotel where it was taking place and next to the um, uh, conference centre where it was taking place I spotted a uh, Soviet Naval Air Force Colonel and um, uh, approached him to find out what on earth he was doing there and um, he told me that he was uh, the Colonel in charge of the Flanker Squadron on the uh, Kuznetsov and had been uh, sorry, not the Kuznetsov, on the... I can't remember the name of the Russian ship he was on, in charge of. Uh, he, was on, he was serving on. Uh, it was the carrier operational at that time. And he told me that he was there to lobby the Ukrainians to allow them to fly their now Russian aircraft in Ukrainian airspace. Mm -hmm. Because you know what, uh, Simon, we got, we got to be quite friendly over a, a, couple, of, uh, a couple of beers... You know what, Simon, if we don't fly, we're not going to be able to operate in a year's time. And I was able to report that calamity going on in uh, the uh, Soviet, or now the, then the Russian Naval Air Force. And it was actually quite a bitter moment for me when I realized that just 12 years later, uh, 15 years later, we were doing something not dissimilar to ourselves. That interruption of fixed-wing practice, whether it's on, on, the, on, the flight deck, on the flight deck, Simon, whether it's in the air, whether it's in Flyco, it's very clear to me when I witness carrier operations that the continuance of the same is a very, very important thing. And... What struck me since becoming managing director on the Alliance is that the Navy's done a very good job in working with the US Marine Corps and in some cases with the French to continue those skills so that when we begin to operate the F-35 at the end of this year, we've got a core of British pilots, Fleet Air Arm and Royal Air Force who are entirely familiar and competent on this type 
and in many cases have flown on operations already. Now, I hope this is going to work next. One of the features I have been amazed by since uh, starting this work is the uh, opportunity to land the aircraft the white aim point. like this. As the glide slope scale approaches, the aim point starting to round the corner and putting the SRVV in the middle of the glide slope scale. Back drive, checking the speed, 58 knots, excellent speed, keeping the SRVV close to the glide slope scale, which I've got aligned with the aim point. Looking for Debbie, there's the Debbie. Glide slope scale and SRVV aligned to touchdown. Impact on the brakes. Full braking using nose steering to stop. It's an easy stop, 350 feet to go. And taxi clear. So a rolling vertical landing where the aircraft comes in at around 60 knots and stops on uh, after a short landing run uh, as you've seen in that simulation. Um, feasible, as Simon absolutely knows. I think you were an architect of this, Simon, you were telling me. Um, a huge operational capability lift here in that the aircraft is able to land back uh, with fuel, with ordnance uh, at an all-up weight that it wouldn't be able to manage uh, in a vertical landing situation. And I'm not sure that many people uh, out there realize that the operational envelope of uh, the F-35 in its short takeoff and vertical landing uh, mode is being extended in this way. It's by no means uh, proven yet. It's been demonstrated and tested in the simulators. And as we go through the testing and development of the aircraft and the ship aircraft interface. This will be one of the key aspects of development that will be moved in on. And this uh, slightly tedious PowerPoint, PowerPoint slide shows you the uh, timescale. This year, uh, the capability insertion necessary for operating fixed wing is going on in Portsmouth. That concludes just before the summer break. Ship will go to sea for a period uh, in July and uh, be alongside in August and sail uh, for the United States for the first fixed-wing flying trials with the F-35s uh, coming across um, from the uh, east coast of the United States. The development trials, the development testing that's going on now uh, ashore uh, will then continue on board. Uh, and uh, the ship will return, uh, and the first level of release to service will occur. At about that time, the F-35s will come to Marham, and uh, IOC um, F-35 for uh, operation from land, that initial operating capability, uh, will be declared. I'm very uh, cautious of saying too much about that because my experience of initial operating capabilities is that they can be what we choose them to be. It will be a very light initial capability, I believe. But that will quickly build uh, because the development flying continues, the operational training 
uh, continues. And if you look at the 2019 and 2020 uh, time, time frame, it's a very intensive period of development, uh, of training, and of interaction between ship and aircraft, with the ship going back out again to complete the, um, uh, the uh, uh, development trials uh, for ship and aircraft to enable the uh, subsequent release to service to enable uh, in 2020 the initial operating capability for carrier strike. So to those of you who have done this work, we've been planning it for some time, that's the timetable. It's holding, it's taught. The ship looks as if it's sufficiently reliable to achieve that. The aircraft is shaping up well and the people both on the ship uh, and in the uh, in 17 Squadron look to me and in the building 617 Squadron look to me to be um, the stuff to deliver that capability to that timetable. Okay, where are we with the Prince of Wales? Uh, this is a, a plan where... Uh, a rather clever slide that my uh, senior engineer, Stuart Justice, has put together here, rolls forward. This year is about building and setting to work the components, and then we get into integration trials of the ship systems in the first quarter of next year, and we plan to be sailing complete in the back end of the third quarter next year. So you can hold me to that. Um, that's very much our job. Whether we've got enough money to do that, um, only the government will uh, tell me. <laughs> but we reckon we've got enough time. And uh, we're going hell for leather at that, uh, really inspired by the progress we've made in the Queen Elizabeth and her performance at sea. Um, this slide shows the, the scale of this four or five year period, you'll see that the Queen Elizabeth is two years ahead of the Prince of Wales and that uh, carrier strike capability starts in 2020 uh, with the final integration of the aircraft and ship. Um, we were delighted to have been there. At, I, I did that animation myself. I'm quite proud of that. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, that, that, that is actually a picture of um, the figures that were on top of the commissioning cake, um, which the, and the, the central figure is a rather cheeky portrayal of the Queen, which she was delighted by. Um, I was honoured to be able to be there in the commissioning uh, ceremony. I'd taken 12 of my shipbuilders with me. We decided to wear white hard hats um, because we wanted to stand out as the shipbuilders. So we were in civvies and in uh, hard white plastic hats. And Her Majesty made a beeline to us uh, because uh, she realised that we'd built it. And uh, I uh, had to... Uh, I introduced my team to Her Majesty. Um, my team are mainly from uh, uh, the west... Uh, sorry, the east end of Glasgow. And this Essex grammar school boy... Uh, struggles to understand uh, many of his direct reports. 
uh, but we're working on it. We're, we're having great fun doing it. Uh, and I said to Her Majesty, Her Majesty uh, I'm going to introduce you to Jerry Deegan, Your Majesty, uh, but at some risk because I barely understand what he says. <laughs> Her Majesty's reply to me, and I'm sure she wouldn't mind me sharing it with you, was, I'm sure I'll have no trouble at all. <laughs> and you know what? She didn't. <laughs> so... Last December marked the moment we have all been working so hard to achieve. The acceptance of HMS Queen Elizabeth by the Royal Navy into Her Majesty's fleet. This has been a fantastic achievement. Not only did we deliver the ship within the contracted timescales, but also the performance of the ship in its early sea trials has been the best performance in living memory of any first-class complex warship built in this country, which is a huge tribute to British engineering, British innovation, and the skills and the dedication of the many thousands of people across the aircraft carrier and its supply chain who have worked so hard to make this a reality. In terms of the, the first steel cut, it was obviously a, a momentous occasion, and I don't think everybody just realised how incredible the journey was going to be. The day that we turned her out the dock, Moving off the wall, turning her around, taking her out of that entrance lock, not a problem. That was a very proud moment, actually, for the yard. And that point of how important the ship is to the people within it really hit home when the ship went from being an inanimate object, which was a place of cold steel, into somebody's home, it's where they sleep, where they work, it's where they eat. And that transition to ship staff move on board really was when the atmosphere on board changed, uh, there was a real pace about a drive to get the ship out, the Navy started taking ownership of the ship, very much then a drive to get her out to sea and get our hands on her. The absolute highlight of working on the programme so far was seeing Queen Elizabeth leave Versailles. I think it was probably a nervous moment, excitement, nerves. Everybody at that particular time, including myself, spent a lot of time on the flight deck wondering if the ship was actually going to get through the gate and then we were allowed up on deck, so we went straight to the bow and looked over the edge and was like, oh, it's a long way down, isn't it? And watching the people milling around on the dockside, watching us and then and waving back. Just the sense of pride for the whole workforce, standing round the head of the dock, watching her going out, seeing the labours of your effort moving. For all that we had only, what, was it a metre either side to come out of the dock? Fantastic piece of engineering. I was so proud standing on that flight deck, seeing the traffic on the other side of the river, uh, people stopping on the bridge. You know, it was just it was amazing the buzz that the whole thing created. The massive day when we sailed the ship uh, from Recife for her maiden voyage was something very special for us all. And uh, I always reflect on how many hundreds of sailors on board my ship have not even been to sea before. So it was truly momentous occasion and a very special day for us all who've worked so hard across the Navy and industrial parts to see her finally get going. It was a real sense of achievement, stood out on the, on, on the flight deck, going under the fourth row bridge with great ease. There's a huge sense of passion and pride that, that we were being globally watched and that we'd all been a part of that. It was a real sense of achievement. The culmination of the years of hard work is ultimately taking the ship out in sea trials. You can do so much testing while you're alongside but the final proof is to demonstrate the ship and the capability at sea. 
We done the high speed manoeuvres, we done high speed trials, we went astern. Without the teamwork between the RN and the ACA we would never have achieved what we did. It was a very, very successful sea trial period for everyone. And what was fantastic, within even six hours of uh, getting out of the North Sea, we hit some very spicy weather and the hull proved to be extremely stable, extremely strong. She didn't flex and very quickly ran up to full power, just under 30 knots, and she performed extremely well. We were all quite nervous, first of all, when we went out to sea. Everybody was waiting for that moment when you get out to sea and you turn your kit on for the first time. Is it going to work? Have we done everything uh, correctly? And I think it was, it was a weight of our shoulders to be able to see that demonstrating and performing when we went to sea. We know it should work, but we've never been able to prove it. The only time you can prove it is when you're at sea. Allowing telephone calls to be made off ship so that the sailors can phone their families in the evenings and for it to work, it's great. We, we work sort of like helping out sort of some of the crew sometimes, like a lot of them, it's the biggest ship they've been on. So. They were pretty impressed with it themselves. It gives these guys invaluable experience of how to operate a ship in the, the years ahead. Uh, the highlight for me would be sailing to Portsmouth and seeing all the, the crowds watching the ship come into its home port. It was amazing, I couldn't believe how many people there was. And you realise how big a project it is and everyone loves it. And I was very proud to actually see her coming up the channel, all the height, the helicopters. And it was actually very pleasing to see the ship staff all around the perimeter with industry in the middle, which, uh, which was a really proud moment. Actually being able to kind of tell my family and my friends that I was stood on top of there and I was part of this, this massive programme and that I could say I was stood in that lineup on top, I'm just so proud of it. There was a general air of anticipation and then as people could see the ship, all of a sudden you could hear the excitement increasing and then there was a massive round of applause. I stood next to a young family and there was this young girl next to me and I pointed out the ship through a gap in the harbour and she was so excited to see it and just to see the look on her face summed it all up for me. Well, as we got to the round tower I was in the front row so I could see people's faces and I could see them waving and smiling and laughing and taking photos and then to get closer to the dockyard obviously you see the old naval ships and you think yep yeah, that's part of our history, go past the Type 45 thinking that's the modern navy and then to come alongside was just amazing. It was just one of those moments that people on board, people witnessing, watching the ship's arrival, it was just something that you'll never forget. It's been really great to see all our hard work come fruition. We spent years and years planning and getting ready for the ship's arrival. And when she came in, it was so seamless and it worked exactly the way we wanted to. When I look back later in my career, I'll know it'd be a job that we did really well. To have the final commissioning ceremony within the hangar deck and Her Majesty the Queen being there and the ship being accepted, the white ensign getting risen up, the satisfaction, pride, enjoyment. Personally, it's the proudest moment of my working career. It, it was just it was the wow factor from the families arriving on board. And it was it was statements like from a TARDIS to this is absolutely amazing inside. How has this ship been built, you know, and, and, and you're sitting in between that, listening to that, saying, you know, I, I, I was part of this. And it was really great to see the Royal Marines Band playing, all the ship's company family there, and the whole of industry in the Royal Navy looking on this project milestone and being very proud for the nation. And of course now we are about to take the ship back to sea where we 
start to operationalize the ship. We test her radars, her radios, and we start to warm the flight deck up with more aircraft. With the Spectre, of course, embarking our first fixed-wing aircraft, the F-35B Strike Fighter, and the ship's responding really well. So what an exciting time ahead after what has been a truly epic and exciting six months before. There's a very much a positive aura about it. The ship's crew love how she handles, love how she operates. Their overwhelming drive at the moment is to, to take her out and show her off across all the other navies across the world. When I watched the news, it was really fantastic to see a ship arrive in Gibraltar and to think that I played just a small part in that programme made me feel really proud. I think it's massively important that we have created a platform that can protect our Royal Navy so they can protect the United Kingdom. It's a fantastic deterrent and to actually hand that over to the Navy to let them learn, understand what they've got, how best to use it, where best to deploy it. I can't think of a better final. These two ships now being built brings the UK very much back to the fore in the world stage again. This is a prime example of how, as a UK, we can still make things. We can still make things that are world class and stand up against anything else in the world. I think we need to build on what we've learnt now and carry it forwards. This is a first and it's got to be recognised, acknowledged and fly the flag. I think everyone should uh, look back and, and give themselves a, a good pat on the back. It's, it's a real good job, well done. And I think there's, there's definitely an emotional connection with the ship. That pride will always come through and, it, and it's almost like a payback through the whole life of the ship. We'll always have that connection with it. Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales, they're both so big that nothing is ever going to match it. All the boats are just tiny. I think it tops everything off really. It's the highlight of certainly my career. It's been a part of my life. A good part of my life. I always describe this programme as iconic. Hard work, the challenges, fantastic. Pride of Britain. Number one team. Rewarding. Professionalism. The largest mobile IT system in the world. It was just great to be part of. It's something that you dream about in your life that you will have one experience. And Queen Elizabeth, for me, was that experience. So it's been emotional, there's no doubt about that, it's been very special indeed, but uh, we've done it for every individual who's played their full part in getting this ship to sea. It's been a truly collective team effort, and you know what? There are very few countries in the world can do this. We should be really proud, really proud as a country, really proud as industry, and really proud as a Navy of what we're pulling off here. It's been fantastic, and thank you all. An alliance is not just about organisations coming together in pursuit of a common purpose. It's about thousands and thousands of people from different organisations with different skills and disciplines working together to achieve something that is far greater than the sum of the parts. So thank you for everything that you've done. I hope that you are all as proud of being part of the HMS Queen Elizabeth story as I am. Thank you. I have the honour to lead that workforce, and none of that, apart from Sir Peter's, was scripted. And um, I find it really quite humbling to have simply put my, feet, my folk in front of a video camera and asked them to record their impressions of working on this programme. So as I say, one down, uh, one to go. We're cracking on. 
I haven't cracked on. We've probably run out of time, but there is time for questions and answers. Simon, over to you. Thank you, Sir Simon. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.